This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. So at the end of our visit, she looked at me and handed me the stack like four inches of internet research. And she handed it to me and said, if you're gonna be my doctor, you're gonna to have to read this first because I'm pretty sure I have chronic Lyme and Babesia and Bartonella and all these things my doctors don't wanna to talk to me about. Nobody believes me. So if we're gonna move forward in this relationship, you're gonna to have to learn this. Welcome to Health Stories. So real stories inside the healthcare system. In this podcast, we invite you to listen to the stories of clinicians and patients and other healthcare professionals. And we invite you to reflect on their experiences as they share with us their insights and suggestions for how to navigate the complex US healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kristen Ryman, who's going to be talking with us about complex illnesses such as Lyme disease. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nicole. Okay, so she hands you a stack of four inches of information and says, you're required to read this to be my doctor. Yeah. And, you know, it was the end of a long day, and I was at that time working in an inner city clinic that we were trying to develop into a federally qualified health center. Everybody was working overtime. I sort of imagined we were working at, like, a startup, you know. It felt like nobody was, like, getting paid overtime, and everybody was working too many hours, and it was stress all the time. And yet, when she handed me that stack, something passed between us. Kind of like in that movie Babe, when the farmer... Oh. takes the pig and they have this silent exchange that happens where mm -hmm. they knew they shared a common destiny. That's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So I took that home and I was getting on a plane the next day. I had to go somewhere for a few days and I read that entire stack and the entire mm -hmm. time I was just like covered in goosebumps because I realized that what I was reading was true and that what I had learned about Lyme disease in medical school was false or incomplete, mm. and that what I had learned had been politically driven, not sort of fact-based or evidence-based, and that I'd been missing Lyme all over the place since medical school in all sorts of patients. I mean, I had like these, I had images of patients flashing before my eyes as I was reading through this and realizing that, wow, 28 days of doxycycline may not be enough in some people to get mm. all the spirochetes. And even in people who recover after, you know, 10 years, or not 10 years, but 10 months of antibiotics that are IV and their symptoms are gone, it's still possible to culture live spirochetes that cause Lyme out of their knee joint. Mm -hmm. And all of these studies that are out there that we were never presented, and I never had any reason to go digging for. As a clinician. Mm-hmm. And it was horrifying. I felt like I'd missed the boat and I'd, I'd caused harm for people in whom I hadn't made correct diagnoses. And the other thing I started to realize was that um, the Lyme I treated in myself six or seven years prior with 28 days of antibiotics as I was taught to do could, could recur if my immune system was down. And at that time, because of the way in which we were working and the sleep I wasn't getting and the fact that I was a year into nursing my fourth child all through the night, every night, waking up every hour on the hour, my own immune system was you know, tanking. And the feelings I'd been having every morning as I woke up 
as if a truck had hit me, you know, feelings that made me think, oh my goodness, is it time to learn about fibromyalgia and is that what I have? That I was realizing could easily have been just Lyme reactivating in my own body. And so the more I learned, the more I felt it was personal. Yeah, okay, so I wanna back up a little bit. So you had a patient who came to you, gave you a lot of information, you started reading, and it sounds like it really shifted your understanding of Lyme disease and made you really question what you had learned or not learned in medical school and as a physician. And before this point though, you had Lyme disease yourself? Yeah, so right after we moved to Pennsylvania, um, I came here in 2004 and I was a resident for several years and during my residency, um, I can't remember the exact context, but I pulled a tick off myself and I had a bullseye rash. Mm. And I you know, thought back to what I had learned in medical school, which honestly, even in medical school, it felt incomplete. Like there was this little feeling, this little sort of voice in my head that says, you know, it doesn't sound like they're entirely sure what to do with this bug because it sounds like there's a protocol that involves four weeks of doxycycline, but there's also this group of people that seems to not get well with that. Or maybe mm -hmm. if you don't get that early enough, you can go on to have, you know, heart issues and brain issues and you know, long-term joint problems. And the first thing I thought of when I had that tick bite was, well, I'm just gonna full court press this thing with everything I know how to do, which at the time was doxycycline for 28 days, why not? You know, people take doxy for much longer for acne. I can certainly take it for 28 days. So I took it for 28 days. I don't remember if I got ill during that time. I just knew I was gonna make sure I maximized my protection against this bug. Because again, it felt like when I learned it, the jury was kind of out um, on what to do about prevention of long-term issues with Lyme. And I wanted to cover my bases. So you took 28 days of doxycycline. What happened after that? You know, residency, I had two more babies. I went about my life. I've always been very busy and very, um, you know, driven. So, and, and, you know, didn't spend a lot of time in my 20s or 30s really listening to my body very well. Mm -hmm. That since has changed. That's been one of the gifts of Lyme disease for me is I pay much closer attention to what my body's basic needs are and I meet them religiously. Did you know, uh, so, so you took the doxycycline, but did you have other symptoms and did other things end up happening that you were like, I don't think this got treated? No. Or did you start thinking you had something else? No, I felt great. You know, I, okay. I, I either felt great or I wasn't paying attention. I didn't really, there was nothing that left me to think that I hadn't gotten all of it. Although when I started reading about it, I realized that I probably hadn't. I mean, you can culture it out of dogs years after, a, you know, full course of doxycycline. You can culture it out of knees. You can culture it out mm -hmm. of people. Um, and that goes against the common kind of dogma about Lyme that we learned in medical school. So when did this patient, how many years later did you have this experience with the patient after you had Lyme disease? Six or seven years later. Okay. So you read all of this literature and you went, wait a minute, and it, it kind of blew, blew your mind, right? Mm -hmm. Blew it totally open. Totally blew my mind. What, what were you reading and how did it change both yourself and how you had treated your Lyme and, you know, did it, did it, I have a lot of questions, so I'll start with that. <laughs> Let's start with, did it make you start wondering whether you had been, you had treated yourself correctly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, inst I instantly felt, wow, I've missed this all over the place and I'm missing it in myself. I don't have fibromyalgia. I have a Lyme recurrence. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes perfect sense. My immune system's been completely dragged through the muck 
for the last many years. And, you know, and I wasn't young when I had my fourth child. I was 40 or 41. So it was like, you know, my body wasn't the same body it had been um, with my first child. And, you know, eventually nursing all night takes a toll, right? And so the other thing I was learning is that Lyme is transmittable through, um, mm. through breast milk, you know, and it's found in semen and it's found in placentas of miscarried babies. And so, of course, I was flipping out mm. because I'm breastfeeding my one-year-old, you know. Um, so yeah, it really, it, what did it do to me? It threw me into a complete panic. Mm. So what did you, so now I'm really curious. I think our listeners are like, what did you learn? So let's, let's dive into that. Cause I'm, I'm kind of itching to find out what are some of the, the main things that you ended up learning from the literature that your patient gave you that was really, um, sort of eye opening for you. So I'll start by saying what I learned in medical school and how this counteracted that. So what we learned in medical school was basically that Lyme disease is caused by a spirochete called uh, Borrelia burgdorferi and that it's easy to catch, not necessarily catch transmitted from someone else, but easy to pick up if you're looking for it diagnostically with a test of some kind and easy to cure. That's kind of the party line. Mm -hmm. And that comes from the Infectious Disease Society of America and they are the ones whose guidelines we learned in medical school. Um, What I learned in my reading on the airplane in a frenzy was that there's a whole other side to the story that's actually represented pretty well in the peer-reviewed published literature. Mm. So um, Lyme disease is caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, of which there are over a hundred different species and subspecies. So um, if you look at the testing that's performed, to pick up Lyme in a person. If you go by the IDSA guidelines, you're supposed to do a first step, which is an ELISA, and a second step, which is a Western blot, similar to HIV. It's kind of a two-step test that goes from being, um, supposed to go from being widely sensitive to pick up as many things as possible, and then focus in by being more specific with the second step. In the case of Lyme, however, because the ELISA is looking for antibodies that your immune system makes to capture and remove the Lyme, um, it doesn't always come back positive in the case of a positive Lyme infection. What everybody would agree on is that that's true because in the first six weeks of an infection you may not have an antibody response yet and so that's pretty well acknowledged and agreed upon. The problem is in Lyme, Lyme undermines the immune system. Mm. So if your immune system is faulty because Lyme has debilitated it, it's not able to make antibodies. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so so in mo- so let's say, for example, I get a virus. My body, you know, I get the flu. My body creates the antibodies against that virus, so when you do the swab to check to see if I actually have the flu, it'll show up and say, yes, you have antibodies against it. What you're saying is that the because of the way that Lyme works, it re- lowers your immune system, and as a result, you might not actually create the antibodies against it, and so it wouldn't show up on a test. Because I've heard a lot of people say they get false negatives, right? So is that what is that why that's we like, get the false negatives? That's one of several reasons. Okay. That's the first big reason that I <laughs> okay. want to explain. So um, it's almost like Lyme shows up and tells your B cells, shh, nothing to see here. Okay. Don't throw out some antibodies and make a big deal about me. I'm just going to go, I'm just going to do my thing. Mm. Um, For a couple other reasons, Lyme can cloak itself in host antigen. What that means is it can take particles and pieces of our host normal proteins that our immune system says, oh, nothing to see here. That's, that's part of Kristen or Nicole. 
and it can hide in them. It can mm. make little Halloween costumes out of our body so that we can't, our immune system doesn't see it or recognize it as being there. Um, but the other problem is that the testing that we use, the ELISA followed by a Western blot, was made out of only a subset of all the potential bacteria that cause Lyme disease. Mm. And so if you're bitten by a tick or you receive a blood transfusion that has a, a strain that is not represented in the two-step testing, whether or not your immune system could handle it, there's no way it ever, would ever show up as positive because they're looking for 10 antibodies out of the myriad of different antibodies mm. that any species could make, but only looking at a handful of those species. Yeah. So you said something I need to pause. <laughs> so we think that Lyme disease is only transmitted by a tick bite. You just said transfusions. And then you had mentioned earlier semen and breast milk and all that. So is this uh, like a virus in, in thinking in that you can get this from other ways? There, You can get this through s- sex? It can be transmitted through, do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, so as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, there are not um, published studies on okay. looking at, you know, you can't take and inject someone and see what happens, right? There's no yeah. randomized controlled trials. Oh, okay. What is clear is that live spirochetes, meaning live bacteria that cause Lyme, have been found in semen, in breast milk, in placentas of miscarried babies. They're also found in ticks, not just the deer tick, right. the Ixodes scapularis, which is what we learned in medical school, but in pretty much all of the biting insects they've looked oh, at. Oh, the lone star tick. All of oh, them. Okay. All the ticks, the dog tick, the lone star, yeah. the whatever, amblyoma, all of them. They're also found, it's also found in mosquitoes. It's also found in fleas. It's also found in bird poop. Wow. So it's, you know, my sense about it is that we probably are all carrying it. Mm. You know, it's part of our background microflora. Um, some people get a tick bite or get an infection through some, you know, congenitally, and they do fine. You know, they just, their immune system just, at the time they're infected, is just able to handle it. They wall it off, they keep it at bay, it joins the microbiome. Mm-hmm. You know, 90% of the cells in our body are not human. Nine out of 10 cells mm-hmm. in our body are not human. We should pause and just let that land. <laughs> yeah, the Human Microbiome Project has been fascinating and blowing Mm. everyone's minds because 99% of our total DNA, not human DNA. Mm. And part of that is because nine out of 10 of our cells are microbiome. They're all the trillions of bacteria in the gut, Mm. they're fungal, they're parasites, you know, intestinal worms, they're bacteria, they're yeast, and they're viruses. And so these are all things that, that aren't human and yet make us up. And chances are, my, my belief is that Lyme is just a part of our terrain. You know, and some people can handle it being there without letting it get out of hand, and other people don't handle it as well. So when the the medical community says, okay, so Lyme disease is recognizable because there's a bullseye that you get, that is just one way in which it represents or manifests itself in the body. And what you're saying is there are so many different ways that it's carried, that we contract it potentially, that um, we react to it or don't seem to react to it, that it really has become this, and I keep calling it virus, bacteria, that um, sounds really scary. It sounds like it's a, a lot more intrusive and, a, and uh, 
a lot. I was, I'm already, I don't know about anybody else listening. If you live in a tick infested area, especially in Pennsylvania, I'm freaked out by ticks. <laughs> so I mean, anytime we go anywhere, I'm bug spray and I see a tick on me and I start screaming. Only time I've ever started screaming in a car was when I had a tick on me and I'm just screaming in the car. So it might so, be a good time. It might so be I'm a good kind time. of freaked out. Yeah. I don't know if the listeners freaked out, but I'm a little freaked out by ticks already. And now I'm even more freaked out. So, Do we need um, to stop the interview? I know. I think, <laughs> I, I think we need to pause and just take a moment to breathe. <laughs> Let me say this. Let me say this. And I'm so glad you, you are being transparent about that because it totally freaked me out as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things you asked me to think about sharing in this conversation was things that I've learned along the way. And one of the things I've learned is that fear mm. is toxic to the immune system. So... I really love these moments because it's a good reminder of our opportunity for healing those parts of ourselves, which undermine our immune system, which undermine our ability to manage our 90% properly, whether we have Lyme in there or not, right? And that um, keep us from moving forward. So the, this, the, getting back to my story, which is I think relevant to this point, I, I read all this and I pretty much freaked out. I mean, I've never been a fear-based person. You know me for some time. Yes. It's just not, I don't traffic much in that. Right. <laughs> and yet there I was freaking out on my computer every night, like, you know, like running through my notes and running through all these websites and get digging into the research and finding what was on PubMed and contact, contacting all these Lyme literate physicians and trying to just figure this out. And, I, and my, my son walked in one night and he was like, mom, what is going on with you? What are you so afraid of? Mm. And I was like, I think I have Lyme disease. I think I'm, I think this is like, this is why I feel this way. I think that I, da, 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 I mean, I, all these sort of things. And he said, why don't you just treat yourself then? Mm. And I realized that I hadn't wanted to really accept it or treat myself because I was nursing my fourth and last child. And I didn't want to wean my kid out of fear. Mm. So I said in that moment to myself, maybe even to him out loud, I should ask him to see if I said this out loud, but I remember thinking really loudly, maybe I just need another tick bite to convince me to wean my kid and get on doxycycline. Mm. And three days later, in November, I pulled a deer tick off of my butt in the middle of the night while I was nursing my one-year-old. Mm. And two days later, I had a bullseye rash. Oh my gosh. So be careful what you wish for and right. <laughs> manage fear so that it doesn't do what it does um, because it felt like it became a magnet for an experience that was hands down the, the most challenging experience of my life. So you get bit a second time. Now I'm curious, what do you do this time? So you've read the right? So the first time you did 28 days of doxycycline, now you've read all the literature, you get bit again. Mm -hmm. How is it the same and how is it different mm -hmm. than the last time? So different and evolving, you know, learning constantly. But what happened at that moment was my fear evaporated completely. And I, I had like this laser focus that came right down. I was like, okay, here we are. We're in the ring with it. Here we're going to go. I weaned my kid immediately. And I went to the doctor and I said, here's what we're doing. It's just like the patient did to you, right? That's, that's it turns out to be an effective yeah. strategy for all listeners out there. I said, we're going to do doxycycline, double dose, mm. tablets, not capsules. 
and we're going to do it for as long as we need to do it until my symptoms are gone completely mm-hmm. and for six weeks after that too. Wow. And I know I said I was going to, that I'd wean my kid, but the truth is I didn't fully wean him because I really wasn't ready to let this thing take that away from me. Yeah. So I said to him, and by the way, you're going to prescribe amoxicillin for my one-year-old so I can continue to nurse him, which in retrospect was crazy town, but I really didn't want to give that up. Okay. So first, did the doctor say yes? Yeah. Okay. So the doctor agreed to it. So tell us exactly what your treatment regimen then ended up being. How much, how many days or weeks? So I I took... As I'm, as I'm remembering the story, I actually was on amoxicillin for the first month with my baby. And after a month, I felt so horrible and like yeah. I was making no progress. And at the time, I didn't realize that Lyme really takes months and months and months. You know, the spirochete has a three to four week life cycle and you can really only kill it during the week that it's sort of awake. Yeah, and so you really have to cover, and that's the rationale from the other set of guidelines that I was following at that point, which was the infection or the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society (ILADS). They're the Lyme doctors okay. um, who say write that again guidelines. for everyone listening. ILADS stands for what? International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Okay. And they're on the web at ILADS.org, and I'd been delving extensively into their research because they have they have all they have all the published papers there they have a bunch of guidelines written by doctors who have you know either been through Lyme themselves or had a kid with Lyme I mean no one really chooses this path out of sort of altruism they choose it because they're touched by it usually I mean maybe there's a handful of people for whom that's not true but for the most part most of the doctors who have made up this organization and who you know end up going down this path are people who have you know had their careers changed because mm. they've been touched by Lyme in some way. And the truth that that was true of these doctors and they were some of, you know, it's so fascinating. Looking back and thinking about my training and all the biases I had against Lyme, you know, quote Lyme doctors, or usually it was quote those crazy Lyme doctors. <laughs> they were always sort of dismissed as, oh, they're just, you know, money grubbing. They charge patients out of pocket, even though those patients have already paid so much at the system and they're just in it, you know, they're, they don't really know what they're talking about. It's not evidence-based. All that's a bunch of hooey. These people are taking massive risks and they're some of the smartest and most compassionate doctors I know. You know, they're curious, they're open to what they don't know, they're always trying to learn. So as as I had sort of been finding this out on my journey to heal my patient and then found myself in the same boat with her, you know, I was even, you know, even more digging and just trying to learn. Um, that was the regimen I'd come up on at that point, which is that I led said double dose doxy for you know, at least six to eight weeks beyond the last whisper of a symptom, and that's what I did. So is so kind of shifting gears a little bit and thinking about um, for those who practice and are clinicians, what are some uh, advice that you give about Lyme disease? So thinking all the way from the beginning to biases that people have about Lyme to recognizing and and symptoms and and diagnosing to treating. So kind of help the the clinicians who are listening um, kind of think through how they might um, really approach Lyme differently than they are. So that's a really hard question to just answer without knowing who my audience is because Mm -hmm. what I usually say one-on-one to doctors who seem interested is get clear on what your intention is in learning about this Mm -hmm. because it really does amount to going down a rabbit hole 
and you really end up um, being on the other side of the fence in terms of a lot of what your colleagues will want to hear from you. Oh. And I, you know, as a person who's taught residents and medical students, you know, I never want to sort of let, I never want to move forward educating people without some consent, mm. you know, because the truth is this is a, it's a politically driven disease, yeah. unfortunately. You know, as patients suffer and I suffer and everyone else who has Lyme suffers, there's all this debate that really has nothing to do with patient care or patient healing. It has to do with money and mm -hmm. politics and whether insurance companies want to pay for two years of IV mm -hmm. antibiotics and, you know, and whether, you know, I'm sure the IDSA is just trying to protect its members, you know, because the insurance companies have been known to call up um, call up boards, medical boards, and say so-and-so, you know, anonymously, and say so-and-so is prescribing outside of the guidelines. Mm. You can't get dinged for prescribing outside of guidelines, but if someone calls the boards on you, they have to investigate, and of course they're going to find something like, you know, you prescribed antibiotics for some kid's brother who you didn't meet, who had a bullseye, and mom mm. called you, and, you know, there are things that doctors do all the time that are sort of verboten, and those things get tagged if you have someone watching you closely. So this has happened, and I think... I think societies are just trying to protect their doctors. Yeah, uh, so two things that made me think of. Number one is that Lyme disease is so prevalent and yet so misunderstood. Um, driving around Pennsylvania, I've actually seen churches, for example, that have Lyme disease support groups, you know, because people are so desperate to get the help that they need and they're not getting it. And I've heard of others who don't get the tests or don't get the treatments that they need and live with it for years. And so you're definitely hitting on... Um, an illness that is is not really well known, isn't really covered by insurance. Um, I myself thought I had Lyme disease and they were like, well, it's like $300 to do the test. So I don't know that we're going to do that. And, you know, so so when you say politics, it, it's, it's interesting because um, I can't help but already think that there's probably some politics involved. Well, and the really sad thing to me is that doctors on the front line don't even know it's a political disease. Yeah. We never learned there were two sets of legitimate and evidence-based guidelines. I mean, they right. use different evidence, but there's evidence for anything you want to find out there. You know what I mean? Depending yeah. on how you do the study. And... The people who are using the ILADS guidelines actually are getting people well. They're getting the chronic Lyme people who get dismissed by, you know, those following the other guidelines as fibromyalgia or crazy or whatever other thing they get told they are. And believe me, patients come to me with serious trauma from what they've been told is going on with them that's not actually going on. But, you know, the people who are actually treating those people can get them well using their guidelines. So. It's, it's unfortunate that doctors don't even know there's debating, you know, competing schools of thought on the matter. Is there, is there something in between, though? You know, so the ILADS guideline, you know, sounds, because you had prefaced it with, it, you give a little bit of a, an explanation before you talk to somebody and, you know, what, what are your goals with this? Are, are there recommendations that extreme from what doctors are taught to do that, I, I guess I, my question is, is there any in between? You know, can you tell a, a, a physician today, you know, consider doubling the dose or consider looking for, for something else or consider asking uh, different questions? Is there, is there anything that a practicing physician can do without feeling like they have to go and follow whatever the, the ILADS guidelines are? Yes. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of leeway. I mean, they're guidelines, right? Yeah. I think that the one this gets into complexity and it also gets into healthcare systems because 
this, the system as it's structured now in an insurance-based practice doesn't leave much time for real conversation between patients and doctors. They don't, it doesn't leave much time for people to negotiate the agenda and bring to light you know, concerns and questions and maybe brainstorm options that are in between those. It's, it becomes very harried and difficult for people to have real meaningful conversation. So yes, absolutely. I think if doctors are interested in, in having those conversations and partnering with their patient, regardless of what the you know complaint is or the suspected diagnosis, I mean, that's the way to go. And it's why I love family medicine. I think family medicine is, I'm biased, I'm a family doctor, but I think we're trained in the art of holding, holding uncertainty, mm-hmm. you know, and recognizing that there's a lot that falls sort of between black and white. Um, and that's true in every field. I think in family medicine, we have to be okay with that just because we see such a huge breadth of, of, of things. Um, and so if you're, you know, I guess I would say this, if, if someone is out there struggling with symptoms and, and leaning into the possibility that they want to entertain a Lyme diagnosis or look into that further, um, it's a great thing to have a partner in your physician or in your healthcare practitioner, you know? Yeah. And that's exactly where I wanted to go next. So that was that was perfect because um, what do we do? So what does the person who suspects that they might have Lyme disease do um, in terms of trying to, and I hate to use this word, but convince their doctor um, first to test for it, but then I'm uh, now I'm now I'm questioning that because so, you just told us that the tests don't necessarily work. So what what do I do? I suspect I have Lyme disease. What what should I do? So that can't be answered in a short. I mean, that's <laughs> what I'm writing the whole book about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what I would say is this: number one, manage your fear. Mm-hmm. Awareness and fear are on the same spectrum but they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? So like, yes, it's important to be aware that we live in a tick infested area and um, a Lyme infested area, and it's not helpful to be afraid, right? Fear just scrambles the brain and makes it difficult to get clear on your own kind of intuitive knowing, but also on your sort of rationale for next steps. So that's number one. So whatever that means for you, figure out a way to manage the fear. I know it's easier said than done. Right. <laughs> I mean, their whole, their whole practice is devoted to this. You know, I use a, I use a kind of tapping with my patients to help them kind of like EFT to, to kind of just help them reprogram and just get clear and calm and grounded and not distracted by all the stuff that buzzes around us. Cause it's very easy with this disease or with this, even with this thought of this mm-hmm. disease to sort of go to freak out mode, right? Not helpful. So that's number one. Number two, arm yourself with education. One of the problems with Lyme disease is that, and this was definitely the pro- a problem with me, is that the brain can just stop working. You know, whether that's just because there's so much inflammation in the body as your immune system or whatever else that's killing Lyme is killing Lyme, or because there are neurotoxins and there are clear neurotoxins that this bug puts out, um, or whether there's Lyme in the brain. I mean, it can be any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be very hard to think. I mean, there were moments where I literally thought I was going insane. I would leave my car running with the keys in it Mm. and not remember that my car had the keys in it and that was still running. And two hours later, when I went to look for my keys, I finally found them in my car Mm. and my car was running. You know, that Mm. really makes you question whether you're going to be able to manage a household of four kids and keep working as a doctor. You know, my brain really went offline for a while. Um, And so if that's the case for you, um, don't be afraid, <laughs> manage the fear, and pick someone who cares about you to help you. 
because you'll need to be an advocate for yourself and you'll need to find some information that you can then share with your treating provider so that you guys can be a team together. There's some great information on the iLADS website. Okay. They have um, a set of guidelines that's, that's older, 10 or 15 years old, written by Joseph Biroscano. Um, I think it's called Tips and Tricks Guidelines for Handling Lyme Disease, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and it's, it's 35 pages of really good information and doctor speak. So it's, it's easy enough to understand for someone whose brain's working and doctors can resonate with the information and the way it's presented. So that's a useful piece of, uh, you know, something to arm yourself with. Um, I don't recommend the internet approach, you know, with the stack of, of information. A lot of doctors get put off by that. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of, if it came from the internet, it's suspect kind of thing. Um, that didn't happen with me because I'm little bit too open with everything but you know I think that is not your best way to go but you know if you have a local Lyme support group Mm. um, and most places do if you google Lyme support group and your name of your town or your area you'll find something Um, they a lot of them have a lot of information that you can take away and then share with your doctor there are also a few online sites where you can you know go to a place of what should I talk to my doctor about what are some Mm. tips for handling my doctor you know handling they probably don't use that that word that's the way I think of it though and how do I how do I be more effective basically in getting what I need what was the literature that the patient handed you um there were there was something from Stephen Buhner on the various herbs used for Lyme disease there was a printout of Charles Ray Jones is who's a famous Lyme doctor in um Connecticut who's been treating children since Lyme was discovered I mean basically he started seeing kids coming into his office with um, JRA, ju- um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, mm. at the epicenter of the Lyme, you know, in mm. the 70s, and noticed that if they also had strep throat, their joint pain would go away when he gave them, you know, treatment for strep throat. So he was kind of discovering it alongside um, the rest of them, the CDC. So um, he's got some guidelines on how to interpret Western blots. I mean, it's so interesting getting back to the testing, even if you have a positive test. This is why it's just so. It blows my mind that this is what we rely on. But if you have a positive Western blot, which is the second step, which is supposed to be super specific, it requires five antibodies in the class of IgG, which is sort of the, typically the chronic infection antibodies, and two out of three of the IgM. Well, five of the total 10 options are specific for Borrelia burgdorferi. The other five can be expressed by Borrelia, but can also come from other places. Uh-huh. So you could technically have a positive two-step CDC accepted test Mm -hmm. and not even have a Lyme spirochete in your body. Wow. So what does that mean you have then? I don't know. Gum gum disease. Yeah. You know, it's it's so interesting to me that that, that this is what we've all agreed on. And in fact, these guidelines were never made to be um, diagnostic. They were set up by the CDC in the 80s as actually a surveillance method. So it was, they were under the, they were understanding that they would miss a good deal of cases and they probably do miss 90 percent but they they were co-opted and created to be the diagnostic standard so um so again i let's say i'm somebody who thinks that i have lyme disease so i address the fear right so i'm going to help my immune system address the fear i'm going to look at ILADS and and check out local support groups and maybe lyme.org or something like that and check out what's out there um, I heard you say, though, that there is this window where you can treat with antibiotics that would be helpful. Um, so I'm thinking, what are the twofold for the people listening, like, oh my gosh, I have a bullseye, I think I have Lyme disease. 
what should they do? Let's mm-hmm. start there. Mm-hmm. Are they advocating for, for antibiotics? Are they telling their physician, give me a double dose? Like, you know, so, what, what so sh- I would recommend pulling up the ILADS guidelines yeah, and, okay. and, and printing them out and taking them to your doctor and saying, okay. look, I'm aware that there are two different sets of guidelines. Yeah. I'd prefer that we use the ones that were written by people who treat Lyme every day. Yeah, okay and see what they say. And they, they can see the, all the re- references and that they're yeah. evidence-based and they can you know, make their decision. And if they're, if they're open to negotiating, I, I don't see why that's yeah. that controversial. I mean, if they balk at you know, double-dose doxy or you know, longer than 28 days, you can remind them that you know, you've probably treated, you may not say it this way, but they have probably treated acne for much longer than 28 yeah, okay. days with the same medication with okay. no ill effects. Now, I recommend probiotics. I don't recommend antibiotics for everyone, depending on the clinical case. Often in cases of chronic Lyme or reactivated Lyme, um, they're not the best approach, although they certainly can be helpful. And that was my second question. So what do you do for the people who are listening who have gone through the dose or double dose or three doses and have had it for years? What are, what are they now doing? What conversations are they having with their doctors? And yeah. what, how are they treating? And, and that's, that's my typical patient, actually. People yeah. who, um, you know, they may have gotten a tick bite that reactivated something or that added new bugs to the mix. And by the way, ticks and these other creatures don't just transmit Borrelia. There's Babesia and Bartonella and a whole, mm. whole you know, list of other guys that get passed along potentially, some of them more commonly than, than what we call Lyme. Um, so this is what part of why the clinical presentation can be so varied. I mean, some mm-hmm. person might just have a little joint pain. Some person might have debilitating fatigue. Other people have brain fog. Some people have all the above. Some people have heart block. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things. And you know, someone who's trained to recognize Lyme and is sort of what we call Lyme literate practitioner, um, either they've been trained by ILADS or they've been trained by some of the other um, groups out there, they will um, be able to recognize clinically these different syndromes of who's kind of at, at um, who's involved in terms of the bugs. Um, but yeah, so for that person, I would say this is a bigger project than just a short course or even a long course of antibiotics. This is about rebuilding your immune system and you know really cleaning up your terrain because it's not just about the germ. You know, Louis Pasteur said apocryphally on his deathbed, he'd spend his whole life saying, you know, it's all about the germ. If we can manage the germ, pasteurize the germ. Maybe he didn't use that word because it wasn't invented <laughs> yet, but right. we can handle it. And um, he's allegedly reported to have recanted that in his deathbed and said, no, actually, it's the terrain. I mean, if, 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 if it were just the germ, you know, everybody would get the flu every year. Everybody would get mm-hmm. sick from Lyme. It's not just the germ. It's about how strong and robust our immune system is. It's how toxic we are. You know, it's how well we can poop every day and sleep properly and clear up inflammation in our bodies and mobilize our immune cells. I mean, these are all really important features for everyone, but definitely critical for people with a chronic um, medically mysterious illness of any kind to focus on. Mm-hmm. And luckily, there are a lot of great um, books coming out on this. There's a, there's a wonderful book that if people wanted to sort of do something in advance of getting in to see someone or while they were just trying to feel better, I really like Terry Walls's book, The Walls Protocol. She's a doc who works at a VA who got MS mm-hmm. and um, cured herself with lifestyle, nutrition, um, a lot of plants, a lot of sulfur-containing vegetables, and has her whole protocol that she's been using now for people with MS and fibromyalgia and probably Lyme um, as a way to rebuild the immune cell system. Mm. 
So and what's the name of her book? The Walls Protocol. W A H L S. A H L S. Okay. Um, and you have a book coming out, right? Would yeah, you like I'm writing our, a book too. Yeah, sure. Tell yeah. our listeners about that. Yeah. So. I guess it's been the last couple of years where I find that every new patient after our you know, two hour visit says to me, oh my God, that was so helpful. Do you have a book? <laughs> Meaning, can I go back and look at it somewhere? And I think, oh God, didn't you take notes? Like you just heard the book. So um, yeah, I'm writing it down now and I'm putting everything I've learned into an ebook format and hoping to get it out and have a bigger impact than I can just have seeing people one-on-one. And what's the name of your book? It's called Life After Lyme, Revive Your Inner Rockstar and Achieve a Full Recovery. Revive Your Inner Rockstar. I love that. That's fabulous. Good. So our listeners can uh, look for that and keep their eye out. Um, any last minute, uh, final, I should say, thoughts or comments that you'd like to make? Yeah. I guess I would like to acknowledge that it's really easy, having been there myself, it's really tempting to want this to be a simple problem, even a complicated problem. So simple problems by definition are problems that have an answer that everyone knows and agrees on. Like you're tired the day after you pull an all-nighter and you say, I'm tired. And someone says, what happened? You say, I didn't sleep. And they say, well, you need more sleep. Like everyone agrees. Complicated problems are a little more difficult, but there's usually experts and there's lots of information that makes sense. And you can learn about how to deal with a complicated problem and then you can manage it. Lime's neither of those things. Maybe for some people. Maybe the small percentage of people who you know, get a tick bite and a rash and just their immune system handles it. Maybe, they're, maybe that's simple for them. For me, it wasn't simple. And for my, most of my patients, it's not simple or complicated. It's complex. Complexity, as sort of defined by Dave Snowden, who was this guy who worked at IBM dealing with complex industry and um, organizational stuff, He said complexity is about problems that don't have answers up front. And you have to find your way to the answer through experimentation and patience and willingness to sit with uncertainty and try and try again. And in the end, you might get to a point where you say, oh, that thing I did here, that definitely was part of me solving the problem. That's definitely why I feel better. Or this happened and I know I felt worse after it. But you can't know it in advance. And so it really challenges I think our sense of wanting to control things, our addiction to control, you know, if you will. And I think that part of the gift of this illness is that it helps us learn to be with uncertainty and learn to be with our messy selves, you know, the, the, the self that we never thought we could face. You know, I lay in my bed for three months, I lost 30 pounds, I couldn't pick up my kid. I didn't think I'd ever work again or think again, clearly. You know, my brain came back, but I didn't know it was going to. And that, um, that changes you, I think, for the better. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Ryman. We appreciate you being here today. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, just a reminder that uh, you can find us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast, so make sure you like us there. And you can also sign up to get our podcasts every week as well. If you're interested in being on the show or if you'd like to leave a comment, again, you can do so on Facebook or at healthstories.castos.com. Thank you again for joining us. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.